when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Right. <laughs> Ready? All right. Three, two, one. Hello. It's the So That Happened podcast. This is Arthur Delaney. It's been an absolutely terrible week here in Washington. A member of Congress was shot, and as of the time of this recording, is still in critical condition. We hope he pulls through. And at our company, HuffPost, we had a massive round of layoffs occasioned by the corporate merger of our parent company with another company. And, you know, when two companies get together, uh, they lay people off so that shareholders can have money. Nothing against the company individually in this case. It's just what happens. It's like when sea turtles hatch and uh, most of them get eaten by snakes. Right. It's just nature. It's just something that happens in nature. So uh, joining me this week, uh, uh, first of all, why why is Arthur Delaney the host right now? Well, one of the people who got laid off was Jason Lincolns. Hi. Uh, we were all blindsided by this. Um, but that's, sad. that's what happened. Um, so joining me this week to... <laughs> To discuss is uh, is Jason Lincoln's hey, and uh, and also Zach Carter who's taking a break from his uh, his book about the 1990s band Offspring. <laughs> it's going to be a great book. You know, I've I've run into some people on the street in Washington D.C. who are fans of the podcast, and they always ask me what my book is about because they think that it's about whatever random crap you guys have been saying for the last month. Well, it is enough about you. Uh, <laughs> Jason, uh, we're real sorry about what has happened. It's it's uh, it's a horrible thing. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> not one of my favorite weeks that I'll remember. You know, in the in the life of this company. Uh, I wish the thing about being laid off is it's kind of like a non surprise, but then you kind of have to emotionally experience it as if it were a surprise. So it's like very strange. You know, you feel a little bit disconnected from everything and uh so it, i kind of felt like this was gonna come i knew well i knew layoffs were coming to this company i had a feeling that i might be one of the people let go um well step back uh everyone knew layoffs were coming this week yeah we no one had any assurance that they weren't getting laid off so the entire newsroom felt the same way you did i personally was very ready and prepared my family yeah i got backed up and packed up a day early. You cleaned out your desk a day early. Yeah. Yeah. Um you know, it's it's it, it it's been a funny kind of experience like the past uh 24 hours um experiencing this um because in a way it, it's sad. It's sad because I, I was here 10 years and uh so I feel like I had a real hand in in helping shape this place and um I I hope that I hope it maintains as much as that shape as possible because I really loved it and I really loved working here and uh, I really loved all the people I worked with. They were really the best. Uh, Ten years of the best people is pretty great. And so I was sad. And then it also kind of feels like you're a guest at your own funeral because you get a well-wisher talking to you on Twitter and Facebook saying nice things about you. 
Um, uh, you are a guest on your own podcast. I'm a guest on my own podcast. Uh, and but, but but you know the the funny thing is, and we talked about this on the show a lot, is 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 that it's weird to be at the center of something like this in the position that I'm in because you know. I'm, you know, a well-established member of America's professional class. And, uh, you know, I'm going, I, I had a union contract. I have a super long runway of pay in my severance. Uh, and I will probably get a new job long before I exhaust that severance. So in a weird way, my experience is going to be, I lost my job and I profited. And, you know, it's really important to remember that, especially since the financial crisis, uh, when a whole lot of rules got changed on America, um, most people who lose their jobs, they go into an extended period of real despair and suffering. I think that I've read so many things over the years about people who have lost their jobs and they've lost their homes, their families have broken up. I've read people um, on the brink of suicide over it and – you know that's the real experience of job loss. I'm, I don't. I don't feel like I'm representative of what it feels like to lose a job. And so, you know, while all this is going on, and it's nice, and it's it, you know, it, it's gratifying to feel like you're at the center of something. You know, I have to take the moment to just say and remind everyone that I'm not really at the center of some kind of big crisis. And you know, it's important to always you know be thinking about people who are really in the center of big crises. Uh, this kind oh, of thing. Well, uh, not to disagree. But uh, having <laughs> written many of the stories about uh, layoffs and prolonged unemployment that went on Huffington Post, it's, it really is something that can affect anyone. And you're not psychologically ready for it yeah, before it happens. Yeah. And, it, and it's it, it, because our society is based on the concept of people going to jobs, it's, it's, I think it's more shocking than people may expect. I, I'm. You did mention a strong upside to the situation here, which I wanted to emphasize. Uh, we organized. Yeah, we organized in a major provision of the contract. We had to fight our managers to create is the severance provision. And when we all knew that these layoffs were coming and we didn't know who would be affected, we looked at each other and said, "Well, at least we got that severance." Yeah, yeah, that's a was, big deal. I, I think that's that's the thing to focus on that uh, we we protected ourselves. It's a huge deal, and people out there need to organize their workplaces. Bottom line, the uh, the rate of unionization in the U.S. workforce is about eleven percent, which is extremely low. It used to be uh, up approaching fifty percent. I think. Uh, I mean, it, these all may sound like really low numbers, but the truth is. Uh, a much larger share of the workforce also benefits from even a smaller number of people who are unionized. There's a, there's a really interesting book uh, called The Great Exception. It's a history book. It's about the, the New Deal era. And one of the one of the things the New Deal era is, is correlated with is this big jump in unionization. It, it more than doubles in the late 1930s because of a bunch of new rules making it easier to join a union. And one of the arguments of the book is that corollary or as a result of this this broader uh, you know, level of unionization, you have other social benefits. There's there's a, a shared sense of solidarity among working people. And so uh, the sorts of petty nationalisms that divide people in, in different ways are not as potent. And people feel a, a more, a stronger sense of common purpose. Yeah. And uh, that era is important because we take for granted many legacies from it, including the weekend. 
it did not exist prior yeah. to the Great Depression. People were fighting for the eight-hour day, but it was still six days a week. And it was only as a result of workers organizing, and not only organizing, but getting their heads cracked open by police forces and National Guard members that we have a lot of the basic things we have now. Anyway, bit of a digression. Uh, so I'm basically, Jason... Worthy digression, I think. Uh, and, and also, just, just to clarify here, this may not be the saddest thing that has ever happened, but it is a very sad thing for us, and we are really upset um, that you're not going to be hosting this anymore. Uh, but we are excited about the prospect of having you as a guest. Yeah, I'm still, I think, pretty good at at fumbling through a segment or two. So Yeah, and uh, <laughs> I would beg, beg the listeners' indulgence for talking about ourselves, but it's still really shocking, and talking is a, a good way for... Uh, people yeah. to process what happened. Well, they probably need to know why there's changes uh, at this. Hopefully, not much more. Uh, I hope this show will keep going because it's a good show. And so, it's fun to do. Only so much more it can change, really. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> let's talk about the uh, the major news this week: the assassination attempt of Steve Scalise, the House Majority Rip uh, uh, Congressman from. Louisiana, you know, one of the deputies of House Speaker Paul Ryan. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an assassination attempt. I mean, we don't know how much the shooter who was killed by police in a shootout, how much he really targeted Steve Scalise, but it seemed clear that prior to the shooting, he was asking people, hey, who are those people playing baseball over there? It was the Republican congressional baseball team getting ready for a congressional baseball game. Is that a confirmed detail? Because I heard that was a little bit sketchy. Maybe it's a little sketchy, but the point is, uh, you know, you're sh- shooting members of Congress, I-, I think, rises to the level of assassination. Political violence. Yeah, political, yeah. Vi- it's political violence. Even if the guy was crazy. And uh, one of the amazing things is to watch how people react to the shooting and how it draws out th- the things they want to argue about what's wrong with our society. Yeah. And, th- and then in response to that, the backlash, like how dare you bring that shit up? Always wow. the case, yeah. Uh, well, Jason, you're a media critic. Uh, <laughs> what do you think? Um, you know, first of all, I'll say that uh, somebody who I really appreciated in the aftermath of yesterday was Arizona Senator Jeff Flake, who uh, who took the time to just sort of do the basic human things, make sure that Steve Scalise's wife was called he went he talked to reporters about this uh he's a pretty humane guy and um i think he i think he was one of those people that was like you know getting the important brass tacks work done yesterday uh in the aftermath of this um there's going to be a tendency now for shit to get really heated up now you're going to have like the Infowars set you know talk about if they're already talking about this as if it was like the first shots fired in the civil war um that's what they said dude yeah, that's what God. they said. The people who sent a, a gunman to Comet Ping Pong are the people who are saying that, that they we, have a proven ability to to uh, unleash nutcases. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's bad. It means that it means that there's it, what what Infowars is doing is guaranteeing a pretty psychopathic backlash. Um, it's I a don't, good thing that Alex Jones, the host of Infowars, is going to have this. Uh, this really awesome interview on Megyn Kelly on MSNBC, yeah, the yeah. liberal news network. Pretty, pretty responsible thing to do um, is to is to uh, elevate a guy like this. I know there's an argument out there that you know Alex Jones has been such a key figure in the recent political scene that he deserves to be interrogated. But uh, you know you can interrogate a guy 
and his principles without ever putting him on camera. You're yeah, not, I think you got you got to know who he is, but you don't. He's, gotta, not, owed, he's not owed yeah. that. He's not owed that. Now here here is the question in response to people saying, "Well, why don't we have gun control?" There's the argument: How dare you politicize this? Steve Scalise could die. You know, he's he's in critical condition. This is a tragedy. What about not politicizing a shooting? I don't understand people who say, let's not politicize this thing that happened in America. I mean, that's that's crazy. It's not like it's it's not like the I I don't even, I don't even compare it to. I'm, I, I'm with you, man. What's politics? Politics is getting together to sort out policy. Yeah. And What's decide- policy? Policy is sorting out. Solutions, potential solutions to social problems, or and, and what's, or a, what's the a shooting? imposition of social problems because we don't like people. Yeah. We, do, we do that too. That's also politics. Right. If, if I'm going down on the street, uh, this uh, some this has been said many times, but I'm one of those people who says if I'm going down the street, I want everyone in the world to politicize my death. You know, I I think I. I mean, if you're going to die, it might as well be a big well, fucking deal. You know what? I don't know why I'm even ham-handing this. I'll, the bottom line is the, the person the, – the people who say don't politicize X after X happens are cowards. I mean there's no nicer word for them. There's, they're cowards. They're simply saying I am afraid of having this conversation because I am insecure about my position in this conversation and I don't want to confront it. Um, that's, that's what they're saying. Well, we should make very clear there's a difference between – between talking about the political implications of something that is very sad and trying to foment a war over something that is very sad. Those two things are distinct and you don't, you're don't. you not guilty of doing one because you're guilty of doing that, the other. That's true. Now, one important way this story got publici- uh, po- uh, politicized is that the shooter had volunteered for the Bernie Sanders campaign and had – uh, you know, he had really liberal politics that he put all over Twitter, and he went to Occupy Wall Street. And the New York Times had a had a great article about how this is creating a crisis for for Bernie Sanders and his supporters. So I thought, well, Bernie Sanders didn't go around telling people to be violent. Uh, so no, why? Uh, yeah, but you saw people like um, like Joy Reid from MSNBC pointing out that uh, that he has a, a pretty you know checkered at best history with uh, with the NRA and, and gun control issues. I mean that that was an that was an attempt to use use the the crisis for political ends. Uh, I mean I think Bernie Sanders does have a bad record on gun control. I don't think it really has much to do with this guy uh, being crazy and killing people uh, any more so than I think like Bernie Sanders breathing air. Uh, you know, was was associated with it. Um, lot, lots of air breathers out there, including this guy who who shot uh, the congressman. Um, that said, I just I wish people didn't have access to guns so they could shoot people. That's I tend bad. to think that that is the the only policy question that's really out there is like gun control. Yeah. Uh, to whom do you restrict access to firearms? This guy was a uh, had a, a number of criminal offenses, including I believe uh, domestic abuse, which is like a clear pattern among. Mass shooters. There's, you know, bringing it up. There's just no solution to the problem. You know, I I think that if you're a public figure, you're going to have people who follow you and are fans of you. And in that cohort of fans, they're going to be really nice people, and they're going to be people who are crazy. Um, and you don't really have a lot of control over that. I mean, if this if this person had been like a nutbag working for the Bernie Sanders campaign, and he had revealed himself to be a nutbag, I'm sure the Bernie Sanders would be like, get the hell out of here. Get out. Bernie Sanders did come out at very forthrightly say this is yeah. awful. I condemn. I mean, it's it, it, it is it does are, show how how deeply divided the Democratic Party is over this though that over still over 2016. Um, you know, this is almost a year later. 
that people are try- are using mass shootings, like people in the Hillary camp are using it to say that Bernie sucks. Yeah, I mean that is that does show that that things are really, really I still think, not well in in Democrat. I, I think it's just wrong and bad to simply associate two sides of a political debate, and and to just blanket call expect everyone on your side to be a good person and everyone on the other side to be a bad person. Right. It's not the way this stuff works. I know Trump voters who are sweet as pie, okay, who I like. And they're, that's they're, that's just them. You know, the people the people you vote for, I, you know, it's weird. We're, we're, we're knit up in politics. We talk about it all the time. But, you know, for a lot of Americans, politics is something they do like, you know, an hour a week. And the rest of the week, they're humping their ass doing something else. Book leave you has know? been amazing for me. Like, my, my wife comes home, and she, she's also a journalist. And so she she informs me. We have this big info dump between, like, 7 and 8, where she tells me all the crazy shit that happened during the day that I missed while I was looking at books written 100 years ago. And she's like your NBC Nightly News, yeah, yeah. Lester Holt. I'm, 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 I'm consuming news the way most people over the age of 70 consume their news. And uh, I consume and it's and it's amazing. I mean, I when I'm not plugged into into Twitter and journalism, that world all day, the the info dump of crap that happens at the end of the day is staggering and bizarre and overwhelming. And I don't know how ordinary people keep up with it. It's just it is just a complete wash, and it, it does not necessarily reflect badly on someone's character that they picked someone who I, I don't particularly approve of uh, as as president of the United States. Yeah. Well, you know what? If you want to get involved with a presidential candidate, that's great. You should. Here's a good rule in life. Don't shoot other people. Don't shoot other people. I mean – That is a kind of good rule. Yeah. I, I feel I feel like an idiot Is that, is that, that in the Bible? There, <laughs> the Bible think, has pretty strong there, there may, there may be killing. an early version of that yeah. in the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, stop killing people. I stop think it's just a good, good principle for stop politics. Stop killing people. Talk to people. Don't kill them. Now, there's one other uh, major political story I wanted to address this week, which was the uh, continued creation of a secret health bill in the U.S. Senate. Anti-health bill, more like it. It's just – it's uh, it's – it hasn't gotten a lot of attention because it's happening secretly, which is exactly the point <laughs> of doing something secretly. And it's incredibly amazing that this is the process Republicans are undertaking to repeal Obamacare after having spent seven years fomenting against the allegedly secret process that Democrats used when, in fact, Democrats had open committee hearings for more than a year. Isn't it simple, though, that the politics of the day force them to do it this way? They're not going to get it passed if it's public, if anyone has time to see what's in it. I think that I think forced is a strong word, though. They could always choose not to do it. I, my my <laughs> assumption about what they're doing is they just want to write it yeah. and have a failed vote on it. And that that is their actual plan. I'm not sure it's going to be a failed vote. I'm not th- I'm not 100 percent confident, but I have assumed that they uh, they if they don't fail in the Senate, they'll expect the the compromised version of this bill combined with the House bill to fail when a conference report is submitted to the two chambers, if it even gets that far. Uh, maybe I'm optimistic, but I, I still smell failure. I've, I've really enjoyed um, watching the preening disaster mess uh, involving Ted Cruz with this? Have you guys followed this? No. Ted Cruz. I was being laid off, so I'm not up to speed on everything. <laughs> you were busy. Yeah. <laughs> Ted Cruz. Well, I was supposed to be writing a book, but I was reading about Ted Cruz. Uh, <laughs> my wife gets mad at me when I do that. Uh, so Ted she specifically Cruz. admonishes you for reading about Ted Cruz. Yeah. Well, I'm about reading. If, if I'm on Twitter during the day, 
uh, she gets mad because she can. She's on Twitter too, and she'll be like, "Stop it! You're supposed to be writing your book." And I'm like, "Ah, I got busted." <laughs> um, who knew Twitter was public? Uh, yeah. So Ted Cruz has been pulling this amazing Ted Cruz stunt. I mean, just the guy's shameless, shameless narcissism is incredible. Uh, he's just going around saying that he can't. He can't really agree to all of the changes, whatever they are, that the, the Senate Republicans are making to the House bill, and he wants the Senate Republicans to just do the House bill. Which is so bad that even the president of the United States, Donald Trump, a man who is famous for firing people on national television, uh, is calling it mean. He's saying the House bill is mean and he wants the Senate to fix it. That, he, had a, he had a party for them. Yeah. He liked their bill, I thought. That he, was the most yep. extraordinary thing is that I, I was like, wait, your contribution this late in the game is to say, oh, don't make the House bill – don't make the health care bill mean. It takes away health care from 24 million people. It's going to okay. be mean. That's a lot of people without health insurance, and that's that's bad. You don't, you know, that, I mean, I think that's a fair characterization to say that if you're trying to take health insurance away from more than 20 million people, that's a mean thing to do. Sure. Uh, I would I would maybe even put it in the single digits of millions. I mean, it would still be mean. naively surprised by how apparently unwilling Republicans are to be called mean. Yeah. You know, if, you're fi- if your fiscal policy is to cut spending... You know, that's what's going to happen. Yeah, there's there's this. Uh, this is partially what my actual book is about. Is is the, the way the that, book is about Blink One Eighty Two. It's the way the way that uh, that that we sort of use uh, mathematical abstractions to cover over what are actually social decisions about people's lives, feelings, relationships, uh, and and you know when you say I I, I want to cut spending, you're talking about a mathematical abstraction. When you say I want to make sure this person here who has cancer, doesn't get chemo treatment, uh, that doesn't feel like a mathematical abstraction, but that's what it means. John Banner liked to say the spending was just putting, like, ants on a treadmill at NIH. (laughs) Or, like, having mice smoke cigarettes. And John Banner is like, hey... What's wrong with letting mice smoke cigarettes? I mean, notorious chain smoker John Boehner. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but, but look, Ted Cruz, what's incredible is that these guys have spent years trying to deal with him, and he is just making them kiss his feet. He doesn't, he, he's not making any public demands. Everything is secret. He is just enjoying his ability to make a big mess for these people by making them come and convince him to vote for the bill. And you know, eventually, whatever it is, Ted Cruz is going to vote for the bill. Because if it involves taking health care away from people, he's going to be cool with it. I don't know. He, uh, Ted Cruz is uh, notably intractable. We'll see. Remember when he shut down the government? But what's amazing is he's doing it even when it's private. Even right. when it's a totally secret thing. He still enjoys screwing with these guys so much Do, that he I, it's just it's an amazing shameless bout of narcissism. I know. The other thing that is worth pointing out, Donald Trump said the health care bill needs to be less mean. I, I, I just want to let everyone know that that on, in, if you're in Congress and you hear Donald Trump say that, you don't know what to do. You don't know what guidance you're supposed to take from that because – he uh, policy wise interjects himself only occasionally, only vaguely, uh, and ultimately you probably know right now that regardless of how you can make this bill even more mean, and if you put it in front of Donald Trump, he's just going to sign it and call it nice. Yeah, I mean, if I were a Republican in Congress, I would just say, "You're right, Mr. President. We changed it. It's not as mean anymore." And he'll be like, "Great, we got a nice bill now." And then I would tell him, "Hey, hey, Donald Trump." Those wimpy Democrats over there, they're saying you're not man enough to sign this bill. <laughs> Those guys think it. they're the boss. 
Yeah. <laughs> are you the boss or are they the boss, Donald Trump? You better sign that bill. Show them who's who's boss. Yeah. Yeah. It's no, there's no there's no like actual cranial activity going on in any of that. Uh, all right, fellas. Zach Carter. Bye. Jason Lincolns. Bye. This is Arthur Delaney. <laughs> we'll be right back. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. And we're back. This is Arthur Delaney. De- <laughs> and we're back. This is Arthur Delaney. I'm joined in studio by Jason Lincolns. Hello. And on f- the phone, we've got former Congressman Reed Ribble. Hello. Hey, guys. It's good to talk to you. It feels so good to talk to you this week. You and I, we're both now between situations. Uh, <laughs> you can tell me what it's like to uh, to have a little free time on your hands. Yeah, it's pretty. I, I can tell you, it's pretty nice. Uh, I've uh, I've enjoyed my post congressional life quite a bit, actually. Certainly, given yesterday's uh, circumstances or this week's circumstances with the shooting in in uh, Virginia, I'm especially uh, thankful that I'm here in Wisconsin. So, uh, uh, there's been a lot of talk about how members of Congress actually don't have any security unless they are part of uh, party leadership teams in the House and Senate, and it can be weird. When you go home and you're all alone and everyone knows who you are, uh, Congressman Reed Ribble, did you have that experience when you would return to your district or when you'd be uh, just around? Oh yeah, I mean, my wife and I'd go out to dinner. We'd be uh, we'd be out and about in the district all the time. And in my first two years or the first term that I was a member of the House, um, the uh, the opposing party would have liked to see me lose my first reelection because that's when members of Congress are most vulnerable and so uh they followed me around everywhere with uh video cameras and uh, uh they would deliberately try to provoke you into uh into saying something or having an altercation um one time they they uh, followed me right into the outback steakhouse in appleton wisconsin got the table literally right next to us my wife and i were out on a date just the two of us and uh, they videotaped us the entire time we were eating there and just tried to to kind of to get under my skin a little bit but I never really felt threatened while in the district as far as any concern of physical harm. And so that was never an issue. Wow. So that that's a sort of different unpleasant thing that I assume is actually really common. You had a tracker get the table next to you at dinner and just sit there while you ate. Yep, just sat there with their their uh, iPhone videotaping us having dinner. 
Were they able to make any political hay out of your dinner that night? Uh, no, no. I, I, I made them all eat that stuff later in the election when that stuff started showing up. Um, they, they never really had any incriminating video of me at all, but uh, I actually ran a commercial about being tracked. And uh, it was really creepy quite a bit because they would come to our home and they'd videotape our home. I, I live on uh, the shore of Lake Winnebago, so my home is a, a waterfront home. They'd go out on a boat and take video from the lakeside, from the street side. I'd leave at 6 in the morning. There'd be two or three cars parked outside uh, on the street in front of my home, and they would start following me uh, throughout the entire day. Uh, I ended up running a TV commercial about it and explaining to uh, citizens here in northeast Wisconsin that my wife was really unsettled about it because it's kind of a creepy thing having people show up at your house. And um, then I felt it wasn't right. And I, I can tell you the folks in Wisconsin – Firmly took my side on that on that issue and uh, sent me back to Congress. Now, trackers are a part of the professional class. Like you could kind of assume that they weren't going to menace you, right? Like wh- wh- that would become the story. And when they walk up to your home and start taking videotape through the fo- through the windows, that's a little creepy. That's huh. weird. Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, we we just kind of uh, had to draw a line in the sand, and and uh, where my wife and I didn't feel threatened by it, it is unsettling to be followed everywhere you go for every minute you're in the district. Do you think this is like actually maybe a, a, a money and politics issue? Because when you really think about it, there's <laughs> it's not really typically useful labor to go watch someone eat at Outback Steakhouse or peer in their windows to see what, I don't know, what sideboard you have, what sofas you have i mean it seems to me that in a normal set of circumstances there shouldn't be enough money laying around to pay people to do these kind of weird things uh but but that all that donor money's got to go somewhere got to fund something someone's got to feel like oh we're getting something out of this right and i mean a lot of campaigns pay uh, people to do that tracking and um and i i think that's an interesting uh, sidebar on it that that it does, it is a reflection of too much money in the system, and uh, you know I, I racked my brain when I was in Congress about how do you get rid of the money. It's difficult to post Citizens United to come up with a solution. But one thing you might try uh, now I, I'm coming up with all these great ideas by the way after I'm out of Congress, uh, but would be to to prohibit PACs from uh, contributing to members of Congress who have direct supervisory authority or committee authority over their industry. So you couldn't uh, have Northrop Grumman, for example, give money to someone on House Armed Services Committee or the banking industry give money to someone on financial services. Uh, you you do something like that, uh, you're going to take the money out of D.C. Yeah. I mean, I just remember when Ben Jacobs and, and, and Representative John Forte had that altercation. One of the things that happened the next day was people were fundraising off of it. There's hours left in that election. What are they going to spend that money on? What rubes are donating these campaigns? I was just going to say with, with uh, Congressman Gene Porte, you know, um, given given the kind of post-Trump election, uh, beating up a reporter might have actually got him more votes in a state like Montana. Oh, yeah, maybe so. Maybe I bet, so. I, That's a really disappointing uh, state of affairs about the discourse that we have in this country where where things can get so volatile. And uh, I, I, I think that this all plays into uh, the shooting incident at a baseball practice for members of Congress. And it's not the cause. The person responsible is the person pulling the trigger on that gun. 
But all this other vitriolic language doesn't help. Uh, Congressman Reed Ribble, you were one of the first Republicans to denounce uh, Trumpism in, uh, I think it was late in 2015, actually, that you called him a toddler. And uh, certainly that, you know, nothing changed. But now that you're out of Congress, what is it like to watch the toddler presidency unfold? Well, you know, there's been, I mean, I think like most presidencies, there's a, there's a good and bad. There's a, a yin and yang, and um, I think you have that. You have that right now with President Trump, as he's trying to kind of get his sea legs about him, uh, not really understanding how government works and how Congress works, even though he campaigned on the fact that he knew the system better than anybody. Uh, the fact of the matter is, uh, it's a much more complicated and nuanced line of work than I think he ever expected. Now, with that said, I think they've made some really significant progress on the regulatory front, things that I'm very supportive of. I, I think that the kind of slowing down um, the uh, the rapid growth of, uh, of, of the regulatory regime out there, I think, has been a good thing for America. And I think a good, it sends a good signal to, to, um, to business leaders about what the, what the regulatory environment is likely to be over the next couple of years. On the downside, they've not been able to uh, to uh, do uh, anything substantial in uh, repealing and replacing Obamacare. We've not seen any tax reform. There's been no budget. Um, the the uh, there's no appropriations. That means another omnibus. Things in overall in D.C. haven't changed for the better. Uh, now, so Congressman Reeble, you're certainly right that one thing that Trump and Republicans actually have managed to do is strike down a whole bunch of Obama, late Obama era regulations uh, through the Congressional Review Act. But why would you cut the president's slack on inexperience when you yourself correctly predicted that he had no, you know, he didn't have experience or temperament? You know, why six months into his presidency is that still worth uh, pointing out as an excuse for, for, for things, you know, falling off the rails? Oh, I, I didn't. I didn't point it out as an, uh, in with the tone of it being an excuse. I mean, I, I'm just I'm pointing it out not as an excuse, but as a reality of fact. I mean, this is what we're seeing. Um, we're yeah. seeing someone with, with very little experience in in the nuance of governing, and uh, it's showing up in the fact that there haven't been significant legislative achievements in the first six months, um, other than. Some some of the uh, restraint on uh, the regu- regulatory growth. So I, I, I didn't mean to imply that that I was making that statement as an excuse or to excuse the president. Well, you know what's funny to me is that there are people here in Washington, D.C., um, who are part of the establishment Republican Party and people who have have worked on White Houses and worked with presidents. I've, I've been kind of like dumbstruck that there's this whole – aspect of Trump's presidency that's not – people can argue about whether his policies are good or bad. But there's a whole aspect of his presidencies where it's just like sort of like own goals uh, in which he just fails to – you know, he fails to get his uh, – put put something in front of the right lawyers, the right agency people. He fails to consult. He uses weird language that throws everything into a tizzy. Uh, he, he makes statements and does things that cause all kinds of things to fall apart. Committees can't meet. Things get rescheduled. Why do you think that no one with experience isn't just going to this White House and saying, look, you're unsettled. You don't know what you're doing yet. Sit down with me. I'm going to teach you how to do some basic things so that you're a more effective president. 
Yeah, well, we don't. I, I'm not in any of those meetings, so I don't know that those conversations are not happening. Oh, that's true. Uh, yeah. That's a good point. You know that people are actually people may be telling him that now whether whether he has the intellectual curiosity or the desire to uh, apply learning uh, something new um, that that might be a different reason for why we have uh, kind of the state of affairs over at the White House that there is. You know, um, I think Rank Priebus is trying to do the very best job he can, but at some point. You know, uh, President Trump has to has to heed and pay attention to what his advisors are telling him. And you know, we, I think we can highlight it on messaging. He'll he'll send uh, people out to uh, have a press conference or whatever. They will say something, and then two days later, he'll kind of cut them off at the knees and say something totally different. And and yeah. generally speaking, the original language was always much better than his own language. And so I don't know how you manage uh, someone who, uh, in this case, has the authority to do so, but can be a bit of a, a loose cannon in that regard in kind of restraining uh, the communications. So it's, it's been fascinating to watch, quite frankly. All right, Congressman Reed Ribble from Wisconsin uh, and Jason Lincolns, thank you both for taking some time on. To, to talk to us today. Uh, I'm very grateful to get a chance to talk to you, Congressman Ribble. It feels good. Well, it's good to talk to you guys, and uh, wish you all the best. All right, we'll be checking back, in back you. with you soon. Okay, thanks much. Bye-bye. And we're back. This is Arthur Delaney. I'm joined by Sam Stein and... Jason doesn't know we're doing this, but we wanted to talk a little bit about Jason. Uh, Sam, you and he worked here together since 2007, was it? Uh, yeah. So I wanted to take this occasion to talk about uh, my beloved colleague, now former colleague, Jason Lincolns, um, because uh, I worked with Jason basically every day uh, of my professional career, except for one month. He started about a month after me, and... Uh, we we started at the one room office in the Watergate Hotel, and it was me, him, and Nico Pitney. And um, Nico is the original bureau chief, and Nico never came in. Nico's whole shtick was he worked from home. So, for the first year or so of our existence, it was me and Jason in a room room office in the Watergate Hotel. Um, and I, I I wanted a bit of a tribute. Um, I want to make this a bit of a tribute to Jason because he's a, a remarkable human being, um, but also like the quirkiest colleague. They think I'll ever have highly quirky, yeah. indeed. And 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 some of these stories might seem like embarrassing, but I I, I look at them as um, very lovable stories, and a way for the listener to um, better understand Jason and the person who you've heard from for all these years on this podcast. So, um, I let me start with my first impression of Jason. Um, when Jason came in, um, he was like this force of nature. He's you know he's a big guy. He had this long hair and this like eccentric beard. And at the Watergate Hotel, um, they served us these breakfasts every day. You just go down to one of the floor and they'd have all these like free baked goods and stuff. And it was very nice and fun. And we would go down every day and we would go and get like a bagel or something. Jason would always get a muffin, and he would bring it back up to his desk, and I would be sitting across, <laughs> I'd be sitting across from him, and he could not eat the muffin without like making a massive 
mess. And <laughs> that happens to lots of guys. Yeah, but no, this was a this was a significant muffin mess. Like there was crumbs everywhere, like all the time, just everywhere. And they would get on the carpet, and the carpet would get stained. And I was just, you know, for the first part of every day for a while, I would just like kind of like look up at Jason, and there would be like muffins all over the pl- muffin crumbs all over the place. And so for that first couple, for the first year or so, we nicknamed him Muffin Crumbs because he just <laughs> he had muffin crumbs all over the place. And I was just like, this man is like he has no like order in his life and this is chaos and like just eat the muffin normally and it sort of symbolized to me like who Jason was like he just couldn't get his shit together that's was- also a clear uh, symbol of how you guys are different yes I, I, I very much do not uh, spill my muffin everywhere no muffin crumbs over by no, your desk no now so so that first year was like it was very People don't understand like where Huffington Post was. Like right now, right now, everyone's like, "Oh, Huffington Post is a big newsroom, massive media company." Like, you know, back then, we didn't do any original work. Like, it was me and him that did the totality of the original work, and um, there was an immense amount of pressure to produce content um, because we wanted to establish ourselves as not just a, a site that aggregated other people's work, that, but a site that actually produced original content. And um, Nico was uh, very, very much a taskmaster. Um, he wanted us to file constantly. And so often the pressure was very immense and, and, and we would be filing four stories a day. And, and the pressure was particularly immense on Jason because Jason was not just being asked to file stories. He was being asked to file like scathing takes on people, like ripping people apart and like being, you know, particularly vicious and stuff like that. Oh, can I just say that before I met Jason, I got ripped by him? <laughs> Everyone got ripped by Jason. Yeah. So this brings me to two stories. One was Jason and Nico had a, like a lovely but also very combustible relationship. And oftentimes – well, not oftentimes, but on occasion, Nico would just push him too far. And Jason would like take his like Coke Zero can that he just finished, freak out, crush it, throw it, leave the office in a huff, be pissed as hell at Nico, and we'd be like, where did Jason go? <laughs> and it was just like you, you kind of like – were in that moment a little bit frightened but also like humored by it because you knew he'd come back but he was just like he was being pushed to the brink and I think Nico recognized it but couldn't help himself so that was one the second thing that was hilarious to me is that Jason would do these incredibly like not mean-spirited but like scathing articles about like fairly famous journalists and (laughs) and we're sitting here in this room right and we didn't know what the hell we were doing we're just trying to make a name for ourselves and these people who we were who Jason was you know ripping apart would often send him emails being like dude what the hell that was way <laughs> harsh like tone it down this is before people were used to getting burned constantly yeah. on twitter and he was tickled by the idea that uh you know that these tv anchors who are like very important people in this universe that we occupy were reading little old Jason Lincoln's and his scathing takes on them and i think it gave him like a bit of appreci- like an appreciation for the job, but like a bit of self satisfaction in a way that I always thought was like admirable. Um, you know, some people in our profession, when they get pushed back by the people they cover, uh, they start to like tense up a little bit. And Jason never felt that way. He always was, uh, he always lovingly didn't care about the response that he got to his work so long as who, he felt confident about the work. Who is his biggest snowflake? There was, there was a time where Ed Henry, I remember, like <laughs> really got upset with him. What I, about uh, Joe Scarborough? Not that I remember Scarborough. I, 
I vaguely remember Russert, but I'm I'm I, it was mostly male TV anchors, but I never Scarbone Dever was part of it. It was always someone else. Um, there's there's one other person I want to ask you about, but I don't want to get ahead no, of you ahead. if you were already gonna no, talk go, about go, this go, person. Go Didn't Donald Trump call him up? And Donald complain? Trump did definitely uh complain to Jason. I forget what the context of the story was, but there was a, a tweet um, or a note that he sent Jason about how oh, – no, a tweet he sent someone where he referenced Jason in the tweet. And the tweet was just about how fucking stupid Jason was. <laughs> and Jason wore that as like a complete badge of honor. This was like well before Donald Trump was into politics. Um, He's also one of the first people blocked by Donald Trump on Twitter. Yes. Uh, and I always loved that about Jason. It was He was better than anyone, better than me at, at an ability to say screw it all. Um, I don't care who I offend, and I think that's a trait that people don't um, don't have enough of in this field. Um, so Jason and my relationship sort of uh, progressed from there, um, and increasingly, I, I tried to become sort of um, an editor for him, uh, someone who can push ideas off. Uh, he could push ideas off of. There was one famous trip that he and I took with Nico. Uh, it was for Netroots Nation, which is this gathering of progressive people. We went out to Austin. Which was a great destination for a trip, and um, again, we were we were a small outfit, and so we were trying to cut costs. And foolishly, <laughs> we decided to like all share a hotel room. Oh. And Jason hadn't, you know, properly warned us that he has a severe problem with snoring. Like his snoring is very, very loud. Yeah, in addition to the muffin crumbs, <laughs> in addition to the muffin crumbs, he's a very loud snorer, and it was like a real problem. Like we were just laying there, and you could not like get a moment's sleep. And like I think eventually we had to get him in his own room. It was just so bad. You guys should have done that in the first place, yeah, man. Well, it's every every trip into a room. This is a big company. <laughs> ever since then, we always had booked Jason his own room, and he and there was no questions asked about why uh, why we should do it. Um, what was what was also telling about that trip, um, which I thought was um, sort of a defining Jason characteristic, was just this weird dichotomy between just how much people thought of him and how little he thought of himself. Um, Jason is – he's neurotic and he always thought that he was, you know, shitty at coming up with stories and like – you know, his stuff was not always up to snuff. And he was walking around Austin and people were like generally like excited to meet the guy who was Deceiver. Uh, at Deceiver. At Deceiver. And people were like in love with his writing and told him so. And he always thought that he maybe was a bit of a fraud. And I always tried to tell him that like, no, that he 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 was like a hero to a lot of these people. That not, – not a hero. Hero's wrong. But that people regarded him like – like a genius in his writing and his ability to cut through the bullshit and to really understand Washington, D.C. And, um, you know, if I have one regret, uh, it's that I never could actually convince Jason just how great he was. And uh, I feel terrible about that. And so I guess I'll leave it there. So that's what happened this week. Uh, This podcast was produced as always and edited and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer in New York City is Nick Offenberg. My name is Jason Lincolns. This week, we are joined by Arthur Delaney and Zach Carter of HuffPost. And we are very glad to have our friend, Congressman, former Congressman Reed Ribble from Wisconsin on with us. You should, of course, 
continue to subscribe to this podcast. You should go to iTunes and download it. You should look for the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts that are there uh, and subscribe and tell your friends. As always, you can send these guys an email at so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Uh, I will be back, hopefully, from time to time as a guest in this chair. Uh, I've really, really enjoyed being a part of this and being a part of this company and working with all these wonderful people. And I hope that you will continue to listen and read these wonderful people and their work. So uh, goodbye for now. And uh, I miss you guys already. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.